So we're entering this time where everything is Christmasized. I mean, how many of you are excited about it? Raise your hand. How many of you had the Christmas songs on the radio before Thanksgiving? You heretics. Okay. No, it's okay. Um, I know that Christmas is, is a beautiful thing, and, and we love Christmas, the wonder of Christmas, but everything seems to be Christmasized in this moment. And, and in the middle of all the wonder that is Christmas, there's also all the busyness that there is. There's Christmas concerts, there's Christmas cookies, there's Christmas parades, there's Christmas cantatas, there's Christmas candlelight, there's Christmas caroling. Um, what are some other things? Christmas trees, Christmas light shows, um, Christmas tree gathering and hunting, uh, um, all these activities, Christmas shopping, Christmas gifts, and what's that? Christmas parties, absolutely, with Christmas potluck food. And Christmas gift giving, which sometimes is white elephant or sneaky Santa or whatever you want to call it. Um, everything just gets so chaotic. And there's a wonderment to it. There's a joy to it, I believe. There's also an exhaustion to it. And, but it's amazing to me that at a time when we celebrate such wonder, such joy, such vibrant thanksgiving with songs that are so merry and bright, it is amazing to me that it's also the time of year where so many struggle with depression. It's the time of year that statistics show that people struggle with the, the worst cases of melancholy, of sadness, of loneliness, of bitterness. Now, some of that is due to estranged families, through decisions that have been made, or the loss of loved ones. And, and that time of merriment is bittered and dissolved because of loss, because of pain, because of hurt. But also I believe that the reason so many people struggle in the Christmas season, though it's so meant to be merry and bright and full of wonder, is the fact that the mind, the heart, the soul is drawn away from the true meaning to just trying to Make up and manufacture some joy and cheer and wonderment. And yet missing the point. I mean, why do we sing the songs that we sing Sunday after Sunday, and, but even more so at Christmas? Why do we sing these special songs this time of year? Why do we worship in Christmas carols the way we do? As we're going to be moving towards the Christmas season, you'll see more and more Christmas carols incorporated in the worship gathering. But why do we do that? Why don't we switch the radio stations to those channels during those times? Is it that we want to be caught up in the wonder? Or are we really connecting with the meaning? Are we really seeing what all of this points to? And are we really answering the question, why should we come and adore Him who is Christ the Lord? Why does we? Why does that call for? Oh, come all you faithful, come and adore Him as Christ the Lord. Why do we do that? Well, I think the Scripture points to us. It points to us that the, in the wonderment and in the adoration of Jesus, our response that are based on one who He is, who He is. I mean, imagine just that answering that question. 
When someone asked you, who is Jesus? How would you respond to that question? You know, I, I love telling people about Jesus. You know, I guys can, I can go on and on. Now that I'll be honest there, sometimes I'm a little cowardice about sharing who Jesus is with people. If you're a stranger, I don't know. I'm like, okay, how do I approach this? How do I share this in the right way without coming across as harsh and showing Christ's love? I'll be honest that I had that moment. But in church, you know, man, that preacher, he can just go on and on about Jesus all day long. But who, how do we respond to that? He's God. He's the one who has always existed and always will. He's the one who came to earth in a baby, grew into a man, and lived on this earth, was tempted in the ways that we were, and yet never ever sinned. He was the one that in all of his sinless was willing to pay the sinner's price by going to a cross in our place. To be that ultimate substitute. He's the one that overcame the grave. Though he died, he spent three days in the grave. He was buried and resurrected. He's the one that dwells in believers through the Holy Spirit. He's the one that speaks and the cosmos happens. He's the one that will bring it all to a conclusion one day. He is the one who is just and justifies those who place their faith in Him. He's the friend of sinners. He's the good shepherd. He's the light of the world. I mean, we could go on and on... And so it makes sense that when we say, I know Him, that we want to sing a song about Him. Think about your loved ones. Maybe they're a child. You'll sing a little sweet little lullaby, love song to them. Because they mean so much to you, right? You don't mind singing to them. Because you're thankful for their part in your life and that they're there. Think about a loved one that's close in your significant other, your spouse, or one that's soon to be. You probably don't mind singing songs to them or singing songs about them. It may be not a song that you wrote. It may be a famous song. It may be a not famous song. And you like singing a song to them because how they make you feel. How good it is to know them. Now let's get to Jesus. This is why it makes sense to sing. That He who is God, who is so much holier than I, or you, or anyone else, would choose to show and display His ultimate love and grace to us so that we might know Him and know who He is. And while it may be fun at Christmas time to hear kids sing Santa Claus songs, and what great joy it is when you see a child sing a song of praise to the Lord. Not just because it's a Christmas program, but because you see in that child hope of who they know. It makes sense to be caught up in the wonderment and adoration of Jesus to come and adore Him because one, of who He is. But second, because of what He does. Not just because of who He is. If it, if it was just who He is alone, that enough would stand as the foundation. But God always takes a step further and greater that blows our minds, shows His incredible grace to us. Not only in who He is, but what He does. There is no story of redemption like that of what Jesus has brought to us. There's nothing that compares to that rescue. There's nothing that compares to that heroism. There's nothing that compares to His greatness, lowering Himself, humbling Himself to exalt and lift up mankind from the muck and the mire to put them in a holy place on holy ground. 
There's no story like that. And the great thing is, it's not just a story. It's something that happened. It's something that still changes lives today because He is still living today. And today we're going to look at the Scripture and see about the things that Jesus does as He provides hope and peace and joy and love. These things that we cherish, these things that we hold dear to, these these words that we use so often, we're going to see how Jesus brings the gift of hope and how that leads us to adoring Him. Now hope, as we like to think about it, is usually like, well, I hope something happens. I hope I get this. I hope my check turns out like this, my bonus. I hope it's, it's more in wishful thinking. It's looking ahead and hoping something's there. But we're going to look and see in the Scripture that hope is something far greater than how we use it today. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read the promise of God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn there in your copy of God's Word, if you don't have a Bible or an electronic Bible and you would like one, you can reach in the pew in front of you, grab one of these up. We're going to be on page 607. And if you don't have a Bible that you understand and can read, hopefully this is one you can. And if you don't have one, take that one with you as our gift to you today. We would have no greater honor than being a church that provides a Bible into your hands and ultimately to your heart. But the words are going to be on the screen. And here we go. We're going to start in verse 2. The prophet Isaiah, declaring the word of the Lord, says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. As they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. The staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and every and the bloody garments of war will be burned up as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. Now check this out. Who is this child? He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, will accomplish this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is Your Word that You declared through the prophet. And I pray that today we would hear from You. That we would hear that it's Your grace, it's Your power, it's Your might, it's Your presence that has been gifted to us that brings us hope. Show show us who You are today and help us to respond to Your greatness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's the thing about hope from a biblical point of view. Hope in the Bible is not used in the way that we would use it today. The way we use it today, as I said, is is a way of saying, I have wishful thinking. I have a, 
a, a hope that something will turn out my way. But in the Bible, in the Old Testament Hebrew days and in the Greek New Testament days, it doesn't represent a wish, it represents a guarantee. It's not a, a looking at possibility, it's a secureness in the promise. It's something that is assured. It's something that is certain. It is something that is good as gold, guaranteed, never failing. It is a promise to us. Now, the prophet Isaiah, as we get into this time, he was a prophet that was used by God, called by God, to speak his, God's Word to his generation. The prophet lived, uh, Isaiah, um, around 722 B.C., before that actually, um, and he would go through the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and some to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he would tell them about the days that were ahead. Now, Isaiah lived in a very difficult time. He lived in a time where there were some good, holy, Lord-fearing, God-fearing kings of Judah and the not-so-good kings of Israel the kings that none of them were ever near to the heart of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And Isaiah, his message at times, while we can look to the book of Isaiah and see all these prophecies, all these promises of a coming Messiah, <coughs> much of the book of Isaiah is about God's response to a people who had grown impatient with the Lord and were seeking to worship in their own way, in their own time, in a way that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And they considered that enough of a substitute that they could live their life any way they wanted. That they were living their life any way as they pleased. They had manufactured their little bubble of what they were comfortable with in their style to meet their needs. And then when they were done with that, they lived however they pleased. Now, I know that sounds like nothing that anybody in any Christian today has ever experienced or attempted, but this is what is going on in that day. Now, the problem with that is because is where the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were meant to be set apart, a, a nation of God's own choosing, that other nations might look and see how God had displayed His grace on this people and that they too, those nations, would then seek the Lord. But because... Israel and Judah's way was askewed and distorted. What people were seeing was not a, a true worship of the holy God. And so the people and the nations were missing out on a vision of God because the people of God were not being pleasing with the Lord. And thus, there was going to be times of destruction ahead. Isaiah shares about God's warnings about these coming on. And in 722 B.C., during the lifetime of Isaiah, the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken by the Assyrians. The people were exiled and the northern kingdom of Israel was never reestablished. And then about 200 years later, the southern kingdom of Israel would be taken over in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians, by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And then you would have people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and those people, their stories, their historical moments. But Isaiah's living a time well before all this. He's seeing the writing on the wall about what's ahead for the people of Israel. He's warned them about what would happen with Assyria. But here's the thing. 
God's Word is not just about doom, 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 destruction, oh, woe is me. In the midst of all of the serious holiness of God, He also displays His serious holiness in redemption, in rescue. And in these moments, when everything seems like calamity, everything seems like darkness, there is the wonderment of God's promise that there is a guarantee of hope. That in the midst of darkness, light. In the midst of war, peace. And one day there will come someone who will make all of this promise provided. And life will never ever be the same. So let's look at some of these guarantees of hope that are found in this text that many times we look to and remind us of. See, even the Old Testament points to Jesus. Let's look and see what has been revealed to us that is our guarantee, our solid assurance, our promise and provision of hope. One that we see is a guarantee of God's power. When you look at verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. That in the moment when everything seems completely a time of desperation, God is going to display His power and it will be a light that will illuminate hearts. It will open the eyes. It will awaken minds. That God's power will come on the land in such a way that it is... a there is no way to deny that God's work and God's activity was there. You may say, all right, a light came on. I can go in my house and flick a switch and the light comes on. Great deal. What a big deal. Well, it kind of is a big deal because you may flick the switch and you may pay the power bill, but it takes a huge company to produce enough electricity not only to light your house, but to light many other houses. And whenever it goes down or when the lines between you and them go down, guess what? You can click, 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 all you want on that light switch, and it ain't going to come on. Because it takes a great power to turn on that little bitty light bulb. So we may not think this is a big deal, but what God is saying is a time before Thomas Edison ever manufactured the long-lasting light bulb. By the way, if you don't know this, here's a doo-doo-doo-doo, more you know thing. Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. He invented the long-lasting light bulb. I know, mind's blown. But, here's what God is saying. I am going to show my power in a visible way that people who were once in darkness will now see a great light. In fact, if you read the verse before it, it's saying that in the land of Galilee, in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, in these lands by the Sea of Galilee, this is where that light is going to be shown. It's where it's going to be very visible. You know what the unique thing about that is? This is the land that was going to be taken over by Assyria. This is the land that was going to be totally exiled. And eventually, as the people would come back to Judah, Judea, they would begin spreading around. But even people that lived in Galilee were kind of had their nose turned up at by other people in the Jewish, um, Jewish histories. They were less than. But out of all the places, Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. The city of his ancestor David. The city of Joseph. But he was taken back to live and raised in a little small village in Nazareth, which is in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. 
And out of there, there began this person that was this radical reformer, this miracle worker, this teacher who taught with authority, who was able to call out and cast out demons and able to walk on the sea. And all of a sudden, click. Wow, we're seeing something we have never seen before. Once there was darkness, there is light. God was promising His power would be manifested in such a way that those living in the land of darkness will have a light dawned. It will be a new sunrise unlike any other. And this is not something they had to wish for. It was something that was guaranteed it was going to happen. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is a promise from God of what is certain that can be banked upon fully with our life. Another guarantee of hope is the guarantee of God's provision. Not only God's power on display, but God's provision given to us. It says, You, God, have enlarged the nation. You have increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before You as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For You have shattered their oppressive yoke, the rod that was on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as You did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and with and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. And what does all that mean? That sounds like a lot of different terminologies going on there. What he is saying is that, God, you took a people that was so small, and now you have enlarged them to something that was beyond their possibilities. And guess what? That's what God was doing in his provision. He was taking a people, and he says, not only are you going to be people, but I'm going to take the people who weren't my people, and now they're going to be my people so that you're all my people. I'm going to make a larger nation that is beyond your geographical comfortableness. It's going to go farther out. Once again, the heart of God is to the nations. Not so they will always be the nations, but so that in His church will be one nation. That the one nation under God is not America. It is the church, the people of the Lord redeemed from all peoples. This is God's heart. His mission heart. And in it, it is not done begrudgingly. It is shown that it increases His joy because it's provision. It's where God has said, I've told you all along this is my promise and now it's provided. Remember that day that whenever you told someone, someone told you, hey, I'm going to get you this? Maybe it was a car. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was something that you just had to wait for and it was a promise and you knew you could bank on that promise. And the day you got it, it was like, it was provided for, and it was like this joy that was overwhelming. Any of you ever had those moments? Those things that just like were just incredibly awesome because you knew the promise was there, but now the provision's there. This is what God is saying. I'm going to provide, and it will, it will bring you joy. And it will be a joy that is much like when harvest time comes. And harvest time in, the, in Israel's day was a day of celebration because all of the work, all the effort was now being reaped. There were feasts, there were celebrations, there were times of worship. Because in that moment it says we have trusted in the Lord and we have followed in what He has called us to do and God has demonstrated His faithfulness in this moment and provided for His people. It is a time of joy. It is also a time of joy like that of when the people were dividing the spoils, whenever the, there was no more the bloody boot of battle, when there was no more the garments of war. Victory had happened. They could celebrate. War was over. I love, I'm, I'm a history geek. I'm a, I'm a geek of many things. I know that. You guys have let me know that at times, and I'm, I'm proud to own that. It's okay. But I'm a geek in all things uh, World War II. 
I didn't live during that generation. My grandfather was raised during that generation. Um, but I, I'm a, I, I love reading about World War II. I love um, studying about what was going on, the comings and goings, what led up to it, what happened after. And, and one of the fun things is that they had like two victory days, VE Day and VJ Day. You know, and, and both those days were huge parties in America. I mean, ticker tape parades, everybody's jump, jumping around. You got a soldier kissing a lady, you know, all these, you know, black and white photographs. Everything's going on. There's a huge party. Why? Because war was over. The cost of battle was done. And there was a time of celebration. And what God is saying is in this time of Israel where they're facing onslaught of war, when they're facing exile, when they're facing darkness, when they're facing their crops being destroyed, that one day God is going to come and He's going to establish His presence. And it is a guarantee that will bring joy, that will enlarge the kingdom, and that war will be over and provision will be made. This is the guarantee. It's not wishful thinking. It's what moves us from... Just wonderment to seeing the meaning of Christmas and having the ability to adore the Lord. There's another guarantee that we see in this. Is that not only do we have God's power on display and God's provision at hand, but we have God's presence actually with us. And this is almost too much for us to really to comprehend. I mean, I know we live in hindsight and we can see back and like, Jesus is Lord. We sing these songs. We know that. But just to think about the promise and the guarantee that was made here. That God was telling His people Israel that one day a child is going to be born to you. And that all authority, all governments, all kingdoms will one day rest on His shoulders. All of them. And this child will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I I just want you to think about how incredibly Huge that is. That Jesus is the promise, the hope guaranteed of God's presence among us. In this day and age, when Isaiah is writing, they still had the temple. There's parts in Isaiah where he goes into the temple and he's, he's astounded by his vision of the Lord. <clears throat> but in that day, the presence of God was something you visited once, maybe three times a year, in a certain city, on a certain date in the calendar, in a certain way. And even though you came to this place of worship, you could never ever fully enter in to the presence of God. We kind of talked about that a couple weeks ago. That you had certain places established for certain people of certain tribes, of certain genders, of certain lineage, and only if you were from a certain family at a certain time of year could you go in to the very near presence of the Lord. This place where there was the Ark of the Covenant. This place where there was this offering of atonement. Once a year by one person on behalf of the nation. But everyone else was excluded. But what God is saying in this moment, whenever this is their experience of drawing near to the presence of God, that most of the nation, their only experience was, there's a wall and something's inside of it. That was the most of the experience. He is saying, I am going to send a very child among you, a very being like you. And He's not just going to be like you. 
He's going to be me with you. He's going to be the wonderful counselor, the one that you can come to and lay and pour your heart before and He gives you direction. He's going to be the mighty God that's able to work mighty power beyond your means. He's going to be the eternal Father. The one that will always embrace you. The one who lives and yet always will. He is going to be the Prince of Peace. He's going to be the one that brokers the reckoning of mankind and display of grace. This is who is going to come. And it is a guarantee of God's presence. Not wishful thinking. Not fanciful thoughts. God's guarantee. Bringing hope. That He would be among us. And this wonderful counsel, this mighty God, this eternal Father, this Prince of Peace, and who He is, He would also do something mighty. He would present us the greatest news ever. The greatest news ever that we call the Gospel. That we could never ever get enough of being reminded of it. Because week after week, we need to be reminding that Jesus paid it all and all to Him. I owe That it is Jesus, this child that was promised, this God's presence among us. The one that we can come to, the one who is mighty, the one who is eternal, the one who is peace. He made that available by demonstrating the fullness of His character. Holiness in in the flesh. Sinless. And yet seeing the offense of our sin, He sufficiently paid our price. And based on what He has done, who He is and what He has done, we must personally respond to Him. To face our life on what He has done for us. To choose what we will do with His name. Will we trust in Him and find salvation? Or will we reject Him and walk away separated from God? And that, that decision matters. Because that decision has an eternal ramification. It makes an eternal difference. Heaven or hell, life or death, blessing or curse. And to get away from that truth is to leave out part of the Gospel. But not only does it have eternal ramifications, it has ramifications, it has impact even now. And if the Gospel is not impacting us now, if it is not driving us in our wonderment, our adoration during Christmas in our humility and, and worship during Easter and all the Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, in between all of them and beyond them. And my friends, we may be trusting in something other than the Gospel. We've got to be careful and understand that God's promise, His guarantee is one that His power is going to be made known. His provision is going to be at hand. His presence is going to be with us. And it's going to bring a response based on who He is among us. And there is another guarantee that I see here in the Scripture. We see the guarantee of the power and the provision and the presence. We also see the guarantee of God's preeminence. There is no one like the Lord because there is no one but the Lord. And it goes on to say what He is able to do because of His presence made known to us that His dominion will be vast. It'll be huge. Its prosperity will never end. Now, I want to be clear here. Sometimes when we see the word prosperity, we're like, oh, I'm going to get paid me a check. No. It means that the success 
of what God has set His will and heart to do will never end. And His heart and His will is that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will come to the feet of Jesus and they will declare that He is the name above all names. And that a part of His will, a part of this success, is that His church would take part in that. And the prosperity will never end. Even the day when God brings a meaningful reckoning to all this, His kingdom will endure forever, succeeding in everything God has set His will to. This Jesus will not just be anyone. He will be the one who reigns from the throne of David. He will be over His kingdom. He will establish it. And He will sustain it. In other words, He'll come from the right lineage because He'll be the child of promise. This won't be any nobody. This will be a somebody specifically chosen by God. Not specifically chosen by man. Specifically directed by God. And based on what He does, I want you to hear this. He establishes the kingdom. Now, to the people of Israel, in that day when they're hearing this, they already had a kingdom. They already had a king. They had multiple kings. Most of them from the line of David, if you were from Judah. So what does this God mean when He said He's going to establish it? It means it was part of God's plan all along. And if you think you've done anything by your own hands, you've missed the point. That God is the one that established it to begin with. But what He did in the days of Israel was only just a small notch. What He did in the days of Jesus changed everything. It established a kingdom like no other. And because of Jesus is living, He not only establishes it, He sustains it. And He sustains it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. You hear that? From now on and forever. That means that that justice and righteousness are not something that God is waiting for one day when we, you know, kick the old metal bucket and we go to Jesus and then, then, then there's going to be righteousness and justice. No, He expects it now, on, and forever. It's a both and. And because He's the one that establishes it and He's the one that sustains it, it means we're not trying to manufacture this on our own merits by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've got to look to Him. We've got to depend on Him to see justice and righteousness in our life and to know that the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That's a powerful, like, boom statement right there. The zeal of the Lord of armies. That's like a man tattoo statement right there. That's like something you want to have, like, on a big old burly preacher's forearm. The zeal of the Lord of armies. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah! What does that mean? It means the one who is the commander-in-chief, the captain of the guard, the very general who leads his armies, the Marine Corps of heaven, has said, it is my passion, it is my onset focus to make this happen. Because hope is not wishful thinking. It's not lifted up thoughts. It's a guarantee of God's promises made provision so that we may know His presence. So what's the big deal to that? What is our response to that? What should be the the drawing back of of adoring the Lord? Well, that's the part of the response. is that there should be adoration. That we like what Peter says to this people in in 1 Peter chapter 1 would be declaring adoration. Blessed be the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And an inheritance into that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That in our life, we must remember that our response to Jesus is that we never forget that adoration is a part of who we are. That we are meant to be living acts of worship, living temples of the Holy Spirit. That our response to this revelation of a guarantee of hope is not only adoration, but it's our assurance that we're no longer tossed about. But we understand, just as the writer of Hebrews did, that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. That it leads us to know that my peace and settlement and sustenance and I'm sustained and established by the hope found in Jesus. It is an anchor for my soul. That in our response, there's not only to be adoration and assurance that settles us, but there's also meant to be an affection that we understand that we're getting from Jesus that this God, He really, really loves me. In Romans Paul writes, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, God is not lacking in His affection for you or for me. Praise the Lord. Because I'm a very needy person. And we may wonder, God, where are you? And He says, I'm right here. I love you. And I've poured out my love on you. And I've poured it because the Holy Spirit lives in you. I'm not giving up on you. Who have you given up on? My affection is for you. That response to this is not only having a life of adoration and not only a life of assurance, but a life of understanding that God loves us in affection, but a life of authority. That we understand as Paul did in Romans 15 when he writes, that whatever was written in the past was written for our instructions so that we may have Hope through endurance and through encouragement found in the Scripture. That you don't have this just for any old reason. You have it because it helps provide authority. And your response is to know it. To know what was written in your past. To know what was written in the past. So that you may have endurance and encouragement. And lastly, our response is not only adoration and assurance and affection and authority, but our Response is that of admonition. Paul would write also in chapter 15 of Romans, Now may the God of hope, you can almost put a little note there, I wouldn't encourage you to always write in your Bible, but some people do that. I do it sometimes. The God of guarantee. Fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you, may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is admonishing you to know that this God of guarantees has done something in your life so that you may also provide that hope, that guarantee of His love and peace to others by His power, not our own. And that is some really good news. Today, I ask you, where is your hope? And what do you base your hope on? Is your hope wishful thinking? Or is it, God, I thank you that your promise stands as a firm foundation. It is solid ground. 
Now build my life upon your foundation. Because you are our hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time that we've had. And I pray in this time of, of response that that's exactly what we will do. We will consider it your gracious invitation to us who need you so much. In the middle of this season that we're moving ahead towards, God, we want to be caught up in the wonderment, but let us not miss the meaning. And let it bring actually greater wonder to this season more than ever before. In Jesus' name we pray.